Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today we're going to be getting in touch with our inner 14-year-old as we review the magical latest entry in the DC Comics extended universe, Shazam. But first, how are you, Scott? Have you had an equally magical week? Magical week, probably too strong of a way to describe my week, but I did see this film on Thursday night on, you know, it's it's Thursday night previews. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about it today. I'm excited to talk about this movie and then also talk about some of the news. It was a, it was a magical week if, if we do want to stretch the magical part out because I spent almost half of my day on Tuesday trying to get Avengers Endgame tickets. And, you know, there's got to be something magical about that experience in and of itself. Oh, man. Let, yeah, we can we can go off about AMC later when we talk about the news. But it was uh, magical. Definitely not the right word to describe <laughs> it. It was frust- frustrating. And that's for someone who doesn't really, you know, isn't a huge Marvel person. Like I'm not, you know, someone who has been waiting a decade or whatever for this movie. Like I obviously want to see it and see it early, but like uh, still I was, you know, pretty, pretty heated about the way that this whole thing went down, but you know, we got our tickets. So we did, you know, I, I, I huffed and puffed about it to you quite a lot. And a couple of my other <laughs> friends who were trying to get tickets, but ultimately it shook out and I, I got tickets for th- my Thursday night, showing that I wanted the one that I wanted and I have tickets for Saturday and Sunday as well. I'll probably end up canceling one of them, but I've got plenty of tickets for this, for this show. So I'm looking forward to it. And I mean, obviously, like you said, over a decade in the making, it does finally come out. It'll be just shy of 11 years from Iron Mm -hmm. Man's release, which is, it's incredible, Scott. It's absolutely incredible. And uh, this culmination of, I've heard, I've kind of laughed at this comparison that I can't remember one of, I don't know if it was one of my coworkers or who it was that made, but you can really think of Avengers Endgame as the, season finale of season one the, this 23 episode season one of, of of the mcu which you could you know call the infinity stone saga you can call it the avengers saga because who knows what the avengers will even mean or even if it'll exist and look like in in the next iteration of this as we move forward but yeah it, it's a real culmination it's an 11 year season of, of long long form television yeah and you know on that note uh, you know before we review avengers Endgame here in a couple weeks let's turn our attention to i think what it's fair to say is the second biggest comic book movie to come out in April, uh, and that is Shazam. Let's do it. Directed by David Sandberg, Shazam is the Philadelphia set story of Billy Batson, played by Asher Angel, a 14-year-old foster kid who has left a trail of bad behavior in his wake since he was separated from his mother at an amusement park at a young age. When Billy is taken into a group foster home run by the kindly Victor and Rosa Vasquez, he at first resists the communal feel of the home. But he's forced to reevaluate what really matters in life when he suddenly finds himself in the lair of the titular Shazam, an aging wizard played by Jaiman Hansu. Billy learns from the wizard that he is the chosen one who is meant to take over the wizard's powers in order to defeat Mark Strong's Dr. Thad Savannah and recapture the seven deadly sins before Savannah can unleash them. What are the wizard's powers, however? Well, Billy soon discovers that simply by saying the wizard's name, he can transform into a buff superhero 20 years his senior. Played by Zachary Levi, the older Billy sets out to fulfill the wizard's prophecy while the younger Billy learns a lesson about the true meaning of family. Scott Shazam is getting some of the best reviews we have seen so far for a DCEU movie. 
Did it cast its spell on you, or was it lacking a magic touch? You know, Scott, I think it's a great question, and it's kind of a question that I think I wrestled with through parts of this movie, because there are parts that I found really captivating, and I thought, in terms of casting its spell, to use that metaphor, there are particular scenes and sequences in this movie that I think absolutely do it. They they cast their spell. I'm totally uh, grooving with, with what this movie is playing, and there are moments that I thought are you know some of the best superhero moments in, in the past few years. To be to be really frank, in terms of its charm and wit and its charisma. And, and yet there are also moments that, that feel like they're really lagging, that slow down and feel kind of the pacing was just a little bit off in this movie and, uh, and intermixing it, the moments of brilliance with the slower, more you know, thoughtful moments that didn't always quite land the way I wanted to. Overall, I thought, Zach, I mean, when I talk about charisma and charm, I think Zachary Levi is the heart of that. I think his Shazam, although not perfect, and, and we can talk more about that when we dive a little bit deeper, but when it's really hitting the right notes, Zachary Levi is the heartbeat of of the movie in that sense, and the heartbeat of that charisma and charm that I was referring to. This movie kind of suffers from some of the the classic superhero movie tropes that I have problems with, and I think that in some cases hold superhero movies back. I think that you know the Doctor Thaddeus Savannah that you mentioned, played by Mark Strong. Although you know, as much as I like Mark Strong. This villain is your, unfortunately, stereotypical one-dimensional villain who you get a brief explainer about their backstory in the first 10, you know, five to 10 minutes of this movie. You never really learn too much else about that backstory and you're left kind of wondering, all right, well, no, I, I get this sort of pivotal point in your life that drove you to become a villain, but I don't really understand how you got all the way to becoming a villain. And it's mm-hmm. not like I really wanted more out of this backstory. I, I imagine I, I would still probably be left with questions around like, all right, but why did you end up becoming a villain? Like, I get it. You were an outcast. You, your family didn't love you, but it, it, it doesn't drive every, every person who is an outcast and who's, who doesn't feel like their family loves them to become a supervillain. And so in, in that sense, it, it falls victim to some similar tropes that we've seen in, in countless movies, including in the MCU, uh, as well as in the DCEU. And, and so that, that I had a little bit of problem with that, but you know, the, these children that we see for a good part of the movie are also, I think, good, but not great. They don't quite get you over the line. I think that for, you know, Freddie, as good as Jack Dylan Grazer is as Freddie. And, and I think that he adds, uh, uh, you know, some more to that wit and that charm of the movie. There are also uh, moments where I feel like it's just a bit awkward or, or a little bit off in terms of it, it, the, whether it's the dialogue or whether it's the delivery. It, maybe sometimes it's hard to say, but uh, again, good, but, but not great. So I think this movie overall comes out better than average, especially when you juxtapose it next to some other DCEU films, in my opinion, especially because, like I mentioned at the very beginning of this sort of blurb that I have here, that I think there are moments in this movie that are absolutely brilliant, and then we will talk about those. I think that there are moments where this movie is able to ramp up that charm and that charisma uh, up to 11, and it doesn't hold it there forever, but the moment for how long it does hold it there, you know, I absolutely love it. And I just wish that there had been more of that. And I wish there had been a little bit more balance in other parts of the movie that complement that. And I'm not asking, of course, for it to be dialed up to 11 and never turned down, but just better balance in those moments that don't make sense to to have that charm and that wit and that charisma turned all the way up. And so th- that's where I think it was lacking. I also think some of the back, again, we mentioned the backstory for the villain, but I also think some of the backstory for Billy as well is a little bit lacking and we can get into that as well you know one of the most underwhelming moments of, that, of the movie is a subplot that has to do with his backstory yeah i mean you know first and foremost i want to say that i do think this is a good movie and for the dceu 
that's great. Like, because they, you know, for my money, there's been one good movie in the DCEU prior to this, and that's Wonder Woman, of course. Uh, and so I think, you know, having a solid movie that a lot of people seem to be loving, critics included, is a great step for the DCEU just to sort of right the ship um, and not worry so much. You know, as a lot of people have pointed out, they don't, they're not really concerned about their whole extended universe you know, keeping that together at all with this movie. This is just sort of a nice standalone movie, you know, sort of in the same way that Wonder Woman does. But at the, Wonder Woman was. It, at the same time, however, like I was disappointed with Shazam ultimately because, you know, the hype had been so great because so many people were loving it. I really thought that I was going to come away, you know, thinking this was one of the best superhero movies in recent years. Uh, and I definitely cannot say that after seeing the movie. I think it's really nice to see a DCEU movie that takes on a very humorous tone throughout. You know, you could describe this as a comedy, I think, you know, for for large parts of it, certainly more so than any DCEU movie that we've seen so far. You know, it it has a very lighthearted spirit about it, but I just didn't find much of the humor very funny. I think I probably laughed a total of five times at at the most. I think that a lot of the humor sort of resorts to slapstick and you know very sort of chuck lorry sitcomish jokes which i was a little disappointed by because i you know again i expected better out of this movie uh and i totally agree with you about mark strong's character i think that's one of my the main qualms with the movie is that yeah there's it doesn't really make sense at all why this guy becomes a villain because in a, many ways his backstory is very similar to billy's uh and yet we see them go in completely opposite directions And I think it's not made clear at all why it is, what it is about the two of them that leads them in those opposite directions um, with Billy becoming a hero and with uh, that Savannah becoming a villain. And and while I think, you know, Mark Strong, he's having a lot of fun here with this role, as you said, with many superhero movies nowadays, the villain is lacking. And I think this falls prey to that as well. I also agree about the kids. I think that they were solid, but not great. And and in particular, I do want to say that I think that Jack Dylan Grazer, he got on my nerves a little bit sometimes, I have to say, unfortunately. Um, you know, he was great. Well, I think both Asher Angel and Jack Dylan Grazer at different points in this movie yeah. get on get on your nerves a little bit, to be fair. Uh, to, to your point, exactly. Yeah, I think that's definitely accurate. They're, they're, you know, just sort of bland characters to some extent. But, you know, when, when Freddy is kind of, you know, whining about how he wants Shazam to come to his school and, like, you know, impress the bullies or whatever, um, I, I don't know. He... he I didn't. I wasn't vibing with the character very much that, and I think Jack Dylan Grazer is fine. I, I mean, he was great in it. I don't know if it was the character here or his performance, or maybe a little of both. That he wasn't the you know lovable sidekick that I really wanted from this character to be. Uh, but at the same time, I I think you're right. I think this movie does have some good moments. The action scenes are, are pretty good. Uh, I I do think it goes on much too long, at least twenty minutes too long. Mm-hmm. And what with that being said, I think that. You know, while the final fight is very long, it could be trimmed down. I think that the way the fight ultimately resolves itself is probably the most satisfying mo- moment of the movie for me. Um, and sort of this climactic, yeah, if you want to call it a twist. It, it is definitely a twist. Yeah. I didn't even know this was happening. I didn't know it was coming. That happens. I think it was really wonderful and unexpected, um, which I can't say for a lot of the rest of the movie. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk about it when we get into the plot of this movie. But yeah, overall, you know, I, I wanted to lead by saying I, I do think it is a good movie because I think I'm going to focus a, a little bit more on the criticisms just because I think the movie has been so widely praised that 
you know, I want to bring it people back down to earth a little bit and, and not have not give them the same expectations that I had going into the movie, because I do think maybe having such high expectations did hamper my enjoyment of a little, a little bit. So I, I, to give a little bit of backstory about mine, I, I can't remember how much I talked about it on the podcast, but the very first Shazam trailer, I was not vibing with at all. I was like, oh boy, this looks like an awful movie for me. It doesn't seem like my taste. Now, some people really loved that first trailer. I just didn't. And the second trailer came out and it, and it felt like a complete 180. I was totally vibing with the trailer. Absolutely loved what they were showing in this movie and the tone and, and, and just the vibe of it. There's no other really way to say it. And I think that ultimately it came out somewhere in the middle, which is probably what we should have expected, right? Or what I should have expected, I should say. And because the movie is ultimately a mix of both things that they showed. It it was just disappointing because to your point, I don't know if I can quantify and and give a number in terms of 20 minutes, but the movie is is too long. The movie is just way too long in in my opinion. And as much as I loved to to your point, and this is exactly what you were referencing, but that final fight scene, gosh, it feels like it felt like it keep they kept cutting back and you know another two to three minute sequence, and it felt like several of them just could have been cut out. As much as I loved that that twist that we'll talk about in a little bit, and if it overstayed its welcome, I mean, I don't know who edited this movie. I mean, someone edited this movie, but someone else should have also edited this movie. And then, like, I can't imagine how much footage they had if they if this was the cut version of that scene because it was very long. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, Scott, with that, I think let's move away from some of our general impressions and maybe talk about some of the performances in the movie. Uh, you know, I guess you, you know you could have some debate about who the lead kind of is here. It's probably a you know a balance of both Asher Angel and Zachary Levi, but Zachary Levi is obviously the bigger name. He's the guy on the poster. So why don't we talk about his performance, Scott? This is a guy who's known mainly for his work on television. How did you think he did? And you know, probably his biggest movie role to date, no doubt. There were moments where I really loved Zach Levi in this movie. And to be fair, those moments that I didn't love him, I think it was just part of his character. And it's and it's the part of fusing the, you know, the Asher Angel Billy with the Zachary Levi Billy. Because the the charm and the charisma to go back to, you know, saying what I was saying earlier, I think that it is embodied by Zachary Levi's larger than life role here as Shazam. I mean, it, this sort of kind of buddy element of Zach Levi and Jack Dylan Grazer on screen is one that I think at times really worked. And then at the other times, I think this movie maybe shot itself in the foot in trying to lean hard into certain subplots of the movie and, and how, you know, you know, you talk about learning a lesson on the true meaning family and, you know, maybe what it, what it means to have friends and how to, and how to handle the superpowers that you're given. Of course we understand that like th- these are, this is a natural learning process, but it doesn't make it, any less endearing when the more annoying aspects of these characters take over. And so I think all that's to say that I think Zach Levi played this role. Great. I think he was absolutely fantastic. The moments where you feel like are, are, are pure Zach Levi in this film are some of the best parts of this movie. My favorite parts of this movie, in fact, are, uh, you know, almost always have Zach Levi in it. And I think that speaks to not only the Shaz- like the, the Shazam as a character, but his performance and and the way he uh, infuses that character with so much life and, and, and so much fun. Yeah, I agree. I think he's he's really good here. I, you know, was intrigued to see him in this role because I, I have been enjoying him and the last season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel in a you know, major supporting role in what I think is the best show on TV by a mile. And so, I, you know, I, I was interested to see what he would bring to this role. And I think he does do a very good job. I like the, you know, early scenes where he's sort of discovering his powers and coming to terms with being a superhero uh, and being in this adult body. One of the five laughs that I probably got in the movie was 
when uh, you know shortly after he discovers his he can become an older person, he he goes to the convenience store and says to the clerk, uh, "I'd like to have some of your finest beer, please." Uh, and that was you know a good line, well delivered by Zachary Levi. And I think those early scenes are good. With that being said, I do think it probably leans into that gag of, oh, look at you know how he's discovering his superpowers and all of this. I think it probably leans into that for a, a little bit too long. And that's you know probably some of the fat that could have been trimmed out of this movie that we're talking about. Because uh, at a certain point, I was like, okay, you're kind of just doing the same thing here. Let's The character needs to come to terms with his powers at some point and you know, be, be more comfortable with his powers. And I think he does in the end, but it... it definitely felt like it took a while to, to get there. But, you know, I, I don't think that a lot of that has to do with Zachary Levi. I think that for the most part, he's pretty good. And I hope we get to see more of this character going forward. Yeah. And I and I think that we will. I think it outperformed its expectations. It made over 50 million in its first weekend. I, I mean, for a superhero movie, it's not that great, but it, I mean, it's outperforming its expectations. And I'm sure making this movie Warner Brothers and DC knew what they were getting into. They knew they were tackling a property that's not as hot as even Aquaman. I mean, I say even Aquaman. Aquaman made over a billion dollars, but not as hot as you know Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, any of those people who they teased in the Justice League. We'll see how much money this movie makes. You know, in the, in the long tail, you know, this could be a movie where you know next weekend, yeah, you have Hellboy coming out, but like, what else are people really going to see? And I think that the A Cinema score that this movie got will probably help its legs in both next week and the week after before uh, Avengers Endgame. So it has two more weekends before Endgame hits. And I don't see anything that's really going to compete with it from a, you know, family friendly superhero genre type movie in the meantime. Of course, you know, Captain Marvel still making money. So that I mean, that's always a threat in that sense. But I think that it's in good shape to, to overperform in its second and third weeks to hopefully make up for what some might consider a, a relatively low superhero movie opening. And, and so, you know, to that point, I absolutely agree. I hope that we see more of Shazam. I'm totally on board with this. And I think Zach Levi would be the perfect person to spearhead whatever that might be. We've sort of shared our thoughts already, sort of, uh, you know, put it all out there in the intro, how we kind of feel about the villain in this movie. That's Savannah, played by Mark Strong. But uh, how did you feel about his performance overall, even if, you know, you may have been unsatisfied with the character? Yeah, I think this is just a classic case of you have a pretty good actor taking on a pretty terrible role in terms of how interesting it is and, you know, the ceiling, so to speak, for the performance. And I think Mark Strong makes the best of it. I think that he's very menacing, you know, very brooding, and I think it fits the character well. The problem is the character is just not all that interesting. And, you know, no matter how much Mark Strong might try, he can't escape the fact that it it's inexplicable why this person, at least from what we have on screen, it's inexplicable why this person has become a supervillain, you know, really. And there, it, it's really hard to move past that, especially when the entire presence of this character on screen, this Thaddeus Savannah character on screen, is to just be the medium for evil in the movie. You, you get absolutely nothing else from this character. And, you know, I, I'll be the first person to raise my hand and say, it's that's not Mark Strong's fault. That's not anyone's fault who's played a villain like that in the last decade in a superhero movie. So... I, I can't really blame Mark Strong. I think he's he 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 does the the role well, but there's a limit to what that role can be. Yeah, I mean, I agree, and I think I was a little optimistic when you know the movie starts out with a five to seven minute scene, you know, just about his backstory, and I thought, okay, we're actually going to get you know a kind of nice fleshed out villain here, uh, but then they they just really muddle the waters, I think, and. You know, there's like one or two vague lines about, you know, where he's talking to to Shazam, Jaiman Hansu's wizard about, 
why he became a villain, but it really just doesn't make very much sense at all to your point. And I think that really just the, the whole villains plot in this movie in general doesn't make sense. Like the seven deadly sins thing. Like, I don't really think that that left enough of a mark on me because the seven deadly sins are really just goblins. They're just big goblins. And yeah, I understand like that they're supposed to be like sort of dressed or, I mean, they're supposed to have the appearance for whatever the sin that they represent is, but like that was not clear at all and very muddled. And it was only clear for a few of them. Yeah. And I think I, I wanted, I wanted them to be, be more clever about the way that that, the way that they work that in, like, you know, maybe he, he harnesses these seven deadly sins and he starts causing people to commit these sins. You know, obviously, you know, we're thinking a callback to, to David Fincher's seven here, but I thought that maybe that's where it was going with this whole idea of the deadly, seven deadly sins. But Man, no, it would have been so much better. <laughs> I know. They're really just a bunch of monsters, you know, pretty generic looking goblin type monsters that uh, he just, you know, sends after the people he doesn't like. So I uh, I think everything about this villain, they, they should have gone back to the writer's table on it, fleshed the character out more, given him something more interesting to do and... You know, again, this is that's not saying very much about Mark Strong. I think you're right. He is pretty menacing and he's played villains before. And uh, I think, you know, it's a good, good spot for him. But uh, he he didn't have much to work with here, unfortunately. To your point about the seven deadly sins, it was it just felt like a joke at some point. Right. Yeah. Like, I totally thought that that was the direction they were going to go. And I was like, oh, this could be super interesting because, you know, the, the seven deadly sins ruling the world or whatever could be a, a very interesting, you know, metaphor or, or thematic. Uh, it could add some additional thematic elements to the movie, which might have, you know, if written and, and done well, could to, could meld well with the story it's telling about, you know, family, etc. But that's just not at all what we got. And I wonder what the logic behind that was or if there was ever a point in, produ- in production or pre-production where they were going to do something else with that, not just in terms of the portrayal of the characters and what they look like, but also, you know, their, their powers, so to speak. But we, we really just didn't get any of that. And it, and it fell flat on that front for sure. Of course, we also don't know, you know, this is obviously working for comics. So they have had their hands tied a little bit in what they could do with the story without, you know, sort of mangling it beyond recognition. But yeah, I mean, but like, I don't think that that's, I mean, that, that doesn't seem like a good enough reason to me yeah. to, cause like, I mean, sure. we're going to talk about a movie next week or next time on the podcast that we, that, you know, dramatically redoes some of the story elements and sure it doesn't mangle it into, you know, not being recognizable. But to me, you know, we can, you can debate whether it's good or bad, but it doesn't stop movies from doing it a lot of the time. And, and I don't think that just because you change something necessarily means that it's bad. Although I think that, you know, some people, I'm sure some people would feel that way. Don't get me wrong, but I don't necessarily, that means that makes the movie worse. Yeah, no, that's fair. I I agree with that. Um, That's not an excuse, Uh, but to, to, you know, to move forward, let's talk also about the other sort of major roles in the movie, which, you know, we've already highlighted um, the the kids. Uh, there are four of them, I believe um, we have. We have Freddie. If you're not counting Billy's Asher, or Asher Angels, Billy, of course, we also have uh, Jack Dylan Grazer as Freddie. And then we have Dar- Darla and Pedro and Eugene oh, and Mary as well, um, who are sort of the other kids in these this foster home who. Billy kind of learns to accept as his real family uh, by the time the movie ends. You know, we've talked about child acting here recently and how in Dumbo it left much to be desired. Uh, You know, what did you think about the younger actors in this movie, Scott? Well, if the benchmark is Dumbo, they did better. They did better than the kids' names who I've already forgotten. 
uh, from Dumbo. And I, you know, I liked some of these performances. Again, I think there are moments where Jack Dylan Grazer, like you said, I mean, I have such a positive perspe- perception of him from it part one or it chapter one or whatever they called that movie. And so it definitely bled over into this movie. And I had, maybe I gave Jack Dylan Grazer a little bit more time than the performance of the role deserved, but I, it took a little while at least for Freddie's character to wear on me. As for the other performances, you know, you mentioned Darla Dudley played by Faith Herman. I think that performance, although minor, is played well. I guess rather than going through one by one, maybe it makes more sense to say none of these characters actually get that much screen time. They're interesting characters, but we don't really know anything about them. Like the the most we know about is Freddie, and all we really know about Freddie is that he's crippled in some, or at least disabled in, in, to some extent. And that like, that's pretty much the only bit of information we really get about any of these other foster siblings. And so it's almost hard to make a judgment on what these performances were like. Like they didn't stand out in a bad way, but their characters, if, if vanilla isn't the right way to describe them, but just, we don't know that much about them. And so because we don't know much about them, it's hard to say one way or the other, whether we, whether I think these performances are amazing. Like none of these performances knock my socks off, but again, to kind of, reference for a different reason that whole idea of a ceiling on a, on a particular role none of these characters were given the opportunity with the exception of maybe freddie of really leaving a, a strong impression i think and you know to what we've already mentioned so no reason to harp on it too much but with freddie i think that 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 role and that and some combination of that role and that performance was slightly underwhelming yeah i think you're right i think the characters on that these kids unfortunately feel a lot more like types right like we have mary you know she's the one who's going to college and we have Pedro, you know, he's the really quiet one. We have, you know, Darla. She's the, you know, really good natured one who likes hugs. And it's like they throw this little, like one thing in there to like be like, okay, here's your character. You know, Mary's going to college. There's your character. And really, it just makes them feel more like types than they do like characters. Unfortunately, I did think that Darla, if I had to choose one, had some nice moments. I, I like when. Uh, so of course, she discovers early on that Billy is actually Shazam, but. Uh, she's told to keep it a secret and obviously has some difficulty doing that, doing so. But then when the other kids finally figure it out uh, and she's like, Oh, thank goodness you are. You figured it out all on your own. Like I didn't, I kept the secret. I thought that was kind of a funny moment. Yeah. She was super cute. Yeah. She, she definitely looked more of an impression than, you know, Pedro or Mary or Ian. Yeah. Who or sorry. Eugene. Eugene yeah. Not, but played by Ian right. Chin. That's why. But they were painting with very broad strokes, I think, in creating these characters, unfortunately. Um, And it's like one of those things where like, it's probably like if they tried to dive into each of these characters backstory, I'm not trying to give them a pass or anything, but it's not like it was feasible for them to give us a lot for these characters, especially given the fact that it was already bloated on some of maybe some of the action scenes or some of these recurring jokes that you mentioned. Definitely. I didn't I didn't want, you know, I, I will trade these these typecasts for 20 fewer minutes of, the, of this film. I hate to say it. I mean, in an ideal world, they cut the other 20 minutes out of, of fat and then they add in the 20 minutes of, of meaningful character development, but that's not a world we're going to get. So. It's probably still too long, but anyway. Uh, I mean, probably, but at least then you feel better about those yes, 20 minutes. Yes, that's true. Uh, but Scott, at this point, why don't we get into spoilers and get into the plot a little bit? And I think in particular, let's talk about number one, uh, you know, sort of Billy's backstory in this movie and also... Uh, let's talk about that ending and that fight scene and the twist that we sort of alluded to. Yeah, that sounds good. Cause I think for me, this is, you know, one of these is a bad thing. And, and the one that we're going to end on is, is kind Definitely of agree. the good news. Yeah. The good news. And so if we tackling the bad news first, this backstory for Billy, we were introduced to it as he basically got separated from his mother 
uh, at an amusement park, implying that his father wasn't around. His mother being a teen mom, his, his dad had, had bolted and, and, and left left his mom with, with Billy. And they get separated at this amusement park, and they've just been separated ever since. And, you know, these opening scenes with Billy, you get this impression that Billy really believes it's just so, so something happened to, to keep them separated. And you have these, you know, adult figures around him, you know, these social workers saying, I get, you know, it sucks, Billy, but you really shouldn't be giving the time of time of day trying to, you know, disrupt the, the, the homes that you, that you could build in favor of trying to find this mother who never, you know, never really cared about you, never really looked for you in spite of what you might have hoped for some reason. But by the end of this film, what you get is this, you know, Billy, or I should say Billy's kind of foster siblings find out where his mother's at. I, I should say Eugene being the, you know, co- gamer, computer, hacker, typecast character finds out where Billy's mom lives it's just down the street or just a couple stops away on the train or whatever it was. And he goes there, confronts her and finds out. Nope. She just left him there in that park. She even saw him with a police officer and she turned and walked away. Cause you know what? She was going to be a bad mom. And so why even try? And it wasn't surprising. It wasn't like, Oh, that's amazing. But it's just like, I guess this is like the, the kind of crucial moment that Billy needed to learn about family. I don't know. I just felt it so underwhelming. I thought that the entire subplot to begin with, or like, I should say the, the plot thread of the idea of him trying to find this mother who lost him in a in an amusement park or carnival or whatever it was, just felt super. I mean, it felt like an underwhelming backstory to begin with that, that left me wanting more to understand why. The, I mean, I get it. Like a, a mother is super important to or I should say parents in general are super important to children, but it, it isn't it didn't seem that ambiguous to begin with. And then to have that whole buildup just to be exactly what we thought all along. I mean, dang, like that's it, to me, that was just super underwhelming. Yeah, no, I agree. I, it just feels like there's something missing from this. There's like one scene missing because mm-hmm. I like, you know, the setup is fine. I think he loses his mom, whatever. And when he, you know, when he does find his mom and, you know, we learn that she, you know, basically willfully abandoned him. I was like, okay, that's interesting, right? Like there's, you know, that's a little bit darker than you would expect from a movie of this type uh, to, to look at those kinds of issues. But then that's it. Like he that's all he needs to, you know, learn the true meaning of family. And we don't get any sort of payoff or like final scene sort of tying up that story with him and his mom where he kind of, you know, really very directly makes that step to say, hey, like you're not my family. Like this is my family. And I, it just, like I said, it just felt like there was another scene that we needed to, to tie off that storyline that was just not in the movie. Yeah. I mean, all we really got was that was the, like you said, that scene, you know, the confrontation scene. And then there's these implications that she's in this really probably unhealthy or bad relationship with whoever she's with now. And that, you know, it seems like maybe she's in, in serially in a bad spot and Billy's better off without her. And the, and the truth is Billy probably is better off without her, but that doesn't leave me. That doesn't leave me with satisfying storytelling, especially given the context of Billy's had all these problems learning, learning how to, or sorry, trying to come to terms with the fact that, you know, his biological family isn't there for him. And it's really this foster family. And, you know, you, you're the one who will label like what is and what isn't your family. And to me, it felt like a more natural progression would be not just, Oh, I now understand what family is and my foster family is my real family. It would be a, a sense of, you know, even deeper denial to me. I mean, that would be, make more sense in terms of Billy's reaction to this, but that's not what you get. You get, you know, you get the full 180 as opposed to the 90 degree turn, the initial 90 degree turn. I mean, and for example, I think I like, I would have liked it if we get a scene at the end, maybe where he goes back and like somehow 
gets his mom to like rescues his mom from, as you pointed out, this abusive relationship, sort of, you know, tying it off of, well, she abandoned him when he was like in a time of need, but now he's not going to let history repeat itself. You know, he's going to be the better person and come, come back for her even when she doesn't really deserve it. Like, I think that would have been a satisfying way to end that storyline. No, I, I agree, but we don't get that. No, we don't. Uh, we're just trying to write a better movie here. <laughs> yeah. And who's to say whether our version's better, but it would yeah. have been more interesting at the very least. Yeah. But all right. Why don't we turn to the good and talk about that uh, final twist? Yeah, absolutely. The final twist. So alluding to it earlier, I think it was a twist. You know, maybe some people think it's less of a twist, but I had not paid close enough attention to the casting of this movie for to, to understand what was happening. And I think uh, they I kept it under wraps pretty well, honestly. Yeah. I mean, this was one of the scenes in the movie where I was like, I was like, wow, this is awesome. And basically what happens in this final showdown with, you know, Thaddeus Savannah and the seven deadly sins and Shazam, he has, you know, all of his foster like siblings there with him trying to fight off the the seven deadly sins. And of course, Shazam, uh, Billy Batson is, is trying to hold, hold them off while keeping his siblings safe. And there's this moment, this kind of sort of final climactic moment where it seems like all, you know, all of his siblings are captured and he's pretty much having to submit to the will of Thaddeus or his siblings will die or his foster, his foster family will die. And the, it, you know, in this final moment, there's this realization that occurs to him. And instead of transferring the power of Shazam to Savannah, what he does is he knocks Savannah back, is able to kind of ward momentarily ward off the seven deadly sins and then gives the power of Shazam to all of his foster siblings. And so now you have what five, different Shazam like things. And I thought this was such a cool turn of events. It was so awesome to see, you know, these five characters together. There are a couple good jokes that are made about the physical transformations of these characters. And then, you know, pulling through their kind of character types into this role in different moments. I'm thinking particularly again, referring almost back to Darla being like the super bubbly, nice one, even when she's beating up these seven deadly sins, I think that that plays for a couple good jokes but you know, it was just a really cool moment and, and it was something in the movie that I just thoroughly didn't expect. And it would just brought a smile to my face. And, you know, for a good chunk of that scene, again, we've talked about how this scene then ran a little bit too long, but it was a super satisfying way to bring this family uh, full circle together and then, you know, defeat the bad guys. Yeah. So I, before I talk about why I liked it, I think I did have one question and maybe this is just something that went over my head, but like, why is it that when he transfers the power to them, like he keeps his power? Because when when the wizard, when Jaiman Hansu transfers his power to Billy, he like disintegrates. So I was a little confused about why there was seemed to be no effect on Billy when he transferred the power to the other foster kids. Yeah, I kind of wanted this myself. And I think that the the answer that I came to, I'm not familiar with the comic lore, and maybe there's a really simple answer in the comic lore, but the answer that I came to was that it wasn't that the wizard, Jaiman Hansu's wizard, loses his powers when he transfers it to Billy. It's that he finally succumbs to old age, death, etc. that had been that he had been warding off of his magical powers for as long as he could, and finally just kind of submits to them now that his power has been passed on. Yeah. I I mean I th- So as opposed to losing his power, you know, he's finally accepting his fate. Right. Uh, you know, as someone who is, is you know too old or, or and, and and dies. Sure. I mean, I think that's a good explanation. But and anyway, I don't think it it really matters because, like you said, it's a really nice scene, really unexpected. Um, you know, was not expecting the scene to go in that direction. But I really liked it, and I think that 
it goes along with what, you know, a, a, a recent theme that we've been seeing in superhero movies. If you want to think about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse as well, this idea that everyone is a superhero, everyone can be a superhero. I think that's exactly what we see with this, uh, you know, final sort of climactic twist with all of the foster kids becoming actual superheroes. Um, you know, th- these unassuming figures who, you know, a lot of them are get picked on and stuff like that. Uh, and yet they're able to to find their inner superhero with the help of Billy. And I think that that's just a really nice theme because it really gets to the human element at the heart of these stories. And and that's something that really resonates with me because I'm always someone who in these, you know, big, big budget special effects type movies, I'm always looking for that really human thread that I can connect to. And I think, you know, audiences in general want that, that's something that they can connect to. And I think that the movie does a really nice job of bringing that home with this final uh, sort of twist. And also on an unrelated note, Adam Brody could not have been more perfectly cast as the person to play the grown up version of Freddie. I was like, oh my gosh, like that makes so much sense. Yeah. And I have to say that to, to, you know, to your point exactly, I think so much of the charm from this movie uh, and so much of the charm from Zachary Levi and the charisma that comes from Zachary Levi is not just his performance. It's definitely part of it, but it's also part of the fact that this is just some random kid who has no real reason to have powers. And he like his experience of having superpowers is so bubbly and charming. And and we get that fivefold basically when you have all the siblings come together and they all, they all manage to, bring bring that charm that kind of like childlike sense of wonder which we talked about maybe in mary poppins but in a different way right this childlike sense of wonder to becoming a superhero and i think that you're absolutely right you know we talked so much and and gushed so much about spider-man into the spider-verse and that being a key component of it i think this movie also has that component as well and and i'm glad you brought that up yeah definitely uh so scott before we wrap up why don't we just talk about you know i think the thing that a lot of people want to know, and that's where does this movie rank in terms of the DCEU? I haven't rewatched any movie in the DCEU besides Batman versus Superman, but I didn't even rewatch that recently. Probably just behind Wonder Woman. See, I, so I'm someone for those of our listeners who I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I actually think Wonder Woman's a, a bit overrated. And I think it's a good movie. Don't don't get me wrong, but I think it's a bit overrated by critics. And so I think this movie also might be a tad bit overrated, but I think it's really close to Wonder Woman, but for completely different reasons. Uh, and they have different flaws for sure. So yeah, I think it's, I think this is probably like clocking in just, just below Wonder Woman, but above the string of what probably follows is like Aquaman, Justice League, BBS, Suicide Squad, or, you know, some combination of those, uh, maybe BBS above Justice League. I didn't like Justice League that much, but mm-hmm. I did like BBS. So this is solidly in second place for me um, in the DCEU. I think, that you have Wonder Woman and Shazam at the top. And then for me, there's there's a really significant drop off after that. Um, you know, I haven't seen BVS. Justice League is pretty bad, but I think Suicide Squad and Man of Steel are worse. Um, oh, I forgot about Man of Steel. That's right. Completely forgot about that one. But so I think, again, you know, we before when we talked about Aquaman, we talked about how DC seems to take one step forward and two steps back. I think this is an example of a movie where they took two steps forward and one step back for a net gain of one step. Uh, and I think that that is good for, for DC at this point uh, where they are. Like I said, they just need to churn out movies that are good. It doesn't matter. They need to stop worrying about the world building and the universe building and all of that. I, I think at this point they just sort of need to 
strip everything down and put out good movies and then, you know, let all of the other stuff eventually work itself out. And I think that Shazam is, you know, a step in the right direction to do that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, I personally think that Aquaman was a step in the right direction. And I do think it was still progress for the DCEU. And and that's evidence just by the fact that it made over a billion dollars. You know, regardless of what you think of the movie, the movie clearly resonated with you know, moviegoers. It, it, it made a billion dollars. It's, it, it's And that's a great feat. That's, it's, you know, something that Wonder Woman didn't even accomplish. And so it's really it was really good to see that step forward. And then it now even better that you're seeing a step forward in terms of the quality. And to your point, you know, we've talked about this in, in certain news segments where we've reported on some DC uh, movie news. And I think that that's absolutely right. They're, they're taking it, they're taking a different approach and rather than worrying about their world building, they're focusing more on these one-off stories. We get this with Shazam. I'd say you even got that with Aquaman last year at the end of last year, in, in spite of the, you know, the mixed critical reviews. And it's what we're getting later this year with the Joker, which a movie that won't even be in the DCEU uh, proper. But of course, is is made by DC and being distributed by Warner Brothers, so on and so forth. And so, I think they're definitely taking a different and a better approach. And as, you know, if they continue to turn out movies of the quality and you know, hopefully even better quality than what we saw here with with Shazam, I think that that's a step in the right direction. And then once they get that right tone, uh, you know, of course, every movie is going to have a slightly different tone. But once they get that that genre of tone a little bit more nailed down, a little bit more uh, tight and 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 right for their for what they're going for. That's when they can start rebuilding the world, and you know whether that world includes a new Batman, a new Superman, whatever that might be. They don't need to worry about that right now. That's something, of course, they can have in the back of their mind because all you know from a business perspective, you have to be thinking four or five, six years down the road. As long as all the priorities lie in making, to your point, high quality movies and and not worrying too much about the world. But of course, we're getting a sequel for Wonder Woman. I think next year, Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. And we know we know that an Aquaman sequel and a spinoff is in development. So it's not like they're abandoning the world building, but they are prioritizing the right things right now. I agree. And so, Scott, with that, why don't we move into the wrap up phase? Uh, what was your favorite scene or moment from Shazam? Yeah. So for those of you who might have read my letterbox review of this movie, you'll have a hint toward what my favorite moment of the movie is. You know, there's this sort of string, this sort of segment or sequence early, kind of halfway through this movie, I guess, where you have. You know, Zach Levi Shazam learning his powers and it's set to the background uh, of some queen music. And I said in my letterbox review that this is the best movie featuring queen music in the last 12 months. And I do believe that this is better than um, Bohemian Rhapsody. And I stand by that. It was just a great segment. I thought that all that charm and charisma that I ta- that I've talked about throughout this episode it really shone in those moments and in that particular sequence. And I just I, fe- I fell in love with that scene. And honestly, I'd go rewatch this movie just to see that scene again. You know, I've talked about how much I love that ending. And so I think I'll focus on one of the more successful comedic gags, I think, which involves uh, Father Christmas, uh, Santa Claus himself. I think that this was kind of a dumb gag for a a large part of the movie, but it did have me laughing at the end when he is interviewed interviewed by a news reporter after the final bat. Uh, final fight scene and just starts dropping F-bombs to be bleeped out uh, right there on the local news, which is was pretty amusing. Um, so I'll, I'll give him some some humor points for that, even though I do think a lot of the humor fell flat. I, I was dying laughing during yeah. that, I'll admit it. Definitely. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Yeah, 7.2. Yeah, I'm coming out a little lower just because, you know, I think some of the some of the flaws loomed a little larger for me. I'm at a 6.4, but 
a good step for DC. Absolutely. All right, Scott, uh, we're going to take a short break now. Uh, but when we come back, we are going to talk uh, about the latest news, including that Avengers Endgame, uh, including the new trailer for Avengers Endgame, and, and also the, the ticket controversy that went down. Uh, so we'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, now before we finish off the show, uh, let's go through some of the big news items from this past week. There's plenty to talk about, I think. Uh, before we get into all of the uh, Avengers stuff, let's first talk about uh, some other news. First, Mark Hamill uh, is was revealed as the voice of Chucky in the new Child's Play remake. Scott, this is uh, a movie that I've seen the trailers for. We've talked about it uh, earlier this year with respect to uh, Brian Tyree Henry, of course, my uh, most underrated actor actor to watch in 2019, playing the detective in this movie. But this is some big news to be revealed about this movie for sure. Yeah, I think that there's actually been, I think, some interesting reaction from fans about, well, one, just kind of replacing the legend that was, I'm forgetting the name of the voice actor who played Chucky in the previous films. But I, I think there was like some angst around that yeah, person yeah, being replaced because it's so iconic. But I mean, if you're going to have a, an iconic voice acting role be replaced by someone, Mark Hamill would be the one that like, certainly you couldn't be upset about. I mean, yes, of course people know him for being Luke Skywalker in star Wars, but you know, honestly, if you know, if you erased everything like pre, you know, star Wars, or if you erased everything out of you know his career, that isn't star Wars, what he'd be known for would be the voice of the Joker and all the, all the DC animated, uh, series and movies. And if you're going to, like I said, if you're going to have a voice actor, replace an iconic, an iconic role, Mark Hamill, you can't be too pissed about it. Yeah, absolutely. He showed that he could play a really maniacal villain for all those great episodes of Batman, the animated series and several films as well. So I think this is a great choice and uh, a movie that I'm even looking, looking even more forward to now, uh, with this reveal. And you won't have to wait too much longer coming out this summer. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked a little bit about the the Black Widow movie that's coming out. Last time we talked about how Florence Pugh has been cast in the movie. Uh, and we now have two more names which uh, have been tapped. What, one who is uh, definitely agreed, and that is David Harbour, uh, and one who is in talks, and that's Rachel Weisz. Uh, Scott, I was already excited for this movie, and uh, these names are just piquing my interest even more. Yeah, there had been some rumors that this movie might you know, end up on Disney plus as you know, of course not one of its initial offerings because Disney plus will be out later this year in this movie, unless it's entering production really soon. It won't come out before summer of next year, even so it won't be, but there was some talk around this movie being, you know, straight to Disney plus as a sort of exclusive offering to, you know, kind of get people to subscribe. If you're not interested in the, in the, you know, in the Marvel shows that are going on there or, or, you know, rewatching the MCU movies that'll be on there, or the star Wars movies that'll be on there. Now, this would be that kind of original content that gets people to join the platform. But with this quality of, of actors and actresses in, in this, you know, Black Widow, it would be a real shame if we didn't see this in the theater, Scott. So I'm, I'm really hoping that when as they continue to cast really strong actors and actresses, including, you know, you mentioned it, Florence Pugh, David Harbour, and, you know, hopefully what will, you know, eventually be Rachel Weisz when she's confirmed. You know, I really hope this ends up in the theater. And I think that the, this level of, of acting is indicating that it probably will end up in the theater. This It's going to be interesting to see where this movie goes after Endgame. 
we don't know really what's going to go down with Black Widow in that movie. Uh, but, you know, we do know that there is more to come from her, which I guess we can't say for some of the other Avengers. So, uh, yeah. This- it, it feels weird if this were to be like an origin story. So, you know, say in a complete total hypothetical that she doesn't survive in game. It'd be really weird if this ended up being. Yeah. If that ended up being the case and this ended up being like an origin story, because, you know, that story is like, you know, eight, nine years late. Because, I mean, this character was introduced in Iron Man 2. So it, it would be a real shame, I think, if that is the direction this movie went. And so I'm hoping that, you know, whatever whatever may come at the end of Avengers Endgame, I hope this isn't an origin story. And I hope that this is uh, I hope this is as good as it's, it's starting to get me hyped up to feel. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it now. The Avengers Endgame uh, news that came out this week. There was a lot of it. First of all, we know we talked about it at the top of the show. Uh, the tickets went on sale. Early on, I believe, was it Monday or Tuesday morning? Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, AMC announced that the tickets were on sale for you know the opening weekend screenings. Uh, and not probably 15 minutes after this announcement went out, their website crashed. Their servers were down um, for a significant number of hours. Many people ended up going to different theater chains to buy their tickets. Got you know, I waited it out because of my AMC Stubbs membership. Uh, but I, you know, I did see a lot of people complaining about getting bad seats because of this, um, or you know, having to pay extra money that they wouldn't have to if they had uh, done it at AMC. And you know, it's just crazy to me to think that AMC couldn't have done more planning for this. Uh, you know, how could they not have anticipated that people were going to want to buy tickets to this movie as soon as they went on sale? Yeah, you know, Scott, it's a great question, and I think that you know, AMC at the end of the day is held accountable in, you know, those individuals who, if they had the option to go to different sites or go to a different theater chain and, and did and, and took their business elsewhere. Right. And that, and that's like kind of the, the final say in the matter. But, you know, my biggest thing is that from a business perspective, if I just put my business hat on here, you know, maybe AMC ran the calculations and decided it wasn't worth whatever, you know, software or I should say server space investment or whatever it would have taken from an IT perspective to build up a cachet or whatever it might be to filter people through and not kick people out, et cetera, and have their servers crash. You know, maybe they ran the calculations and thought, you know what, this is going to cost us, you know, X million dollars. And we're only going to project that we're going to lose X million dollars off of ticket sales. Because even, you know, if people like you, even if people, even if the servers did crash, not everyone is going to be able to go to another site, whether it's because they have the Stubbs membership of the A-list membership like you do, or whether it's because, you know, AMC is the only theater chain in the area, maybe. So, you know, they ran the calculation that maybe they made that business decision and decided, you know what, we're probably not equipped for this. Maybe they didn't think their servers would crash. Maybe that was something that they didn't necessarily anticipate, but that's what happens, Scott. And, you know, I don't know how much money they lost from opening weekend ticket sales here, but I imagine it, it wasn't an insignificant sum. Now, all that matters to say is, did they lose more than it would have cost them to uh, kind of prepare for for this onslaught? And and the real question going on from that is, will this affect people's business in the future going to them? So not necessarily the next time a big blockbuster comes up, but you know, the next time you go, you want to go see a movie, you know, w- will you go back to AMC if you went to Regal or if you went to your local cinema? Uh, I think that's the bigger question there from a business perspective. You know, in some ways I can understand it, you know, Buffing, like beefing up your IT can be very costly, especially at the scale that AMC has. And and especially if this is, you know, a, a once in a decade sort of event, it may not make sense to to build up those servers from from a cost calculations perspective. But that doesn't make my, you know, if I take my business hat off and put my consumer hat back on, that doesn't make me any less frustrated with AMC that they did this. And, and you know, ultimately, that probably doesn't mean that I'm going to take my business elsewhere. 
but it does like, for example, on the, in this medium, on this podcast, you know, I'm going to complain about it. I'm going to raise a stink about it. And, you know, I'm going to be frustrated about it because, you know, their, their, their customers, you know, being the being by far the largest theater chain in the country, you know, their customers deserve better. And I think it's just a, a matter of the fact that they have such market share that they're able to survive yeah. something like this. Yeah, you know, because of the AMC Stubbs membership, because it is such a great thing for for us, and you know, I, I think that I, my hands are a little tied going forward in terms of you know where I take my business. But you know, who knows if I wasn't in that position, how this would affect my view of of AMC and you know where I do take my business for the future? Because I think it's definitely not a good look for them. It's definitely not good publicity, and you know, it may be the biggest theater chain in the world. It may not take a hit a significant hit that is, but I think there are people who, you know, every time they think about going to a movie now and they think about going to an AMC theater, they're going to think about what happened in these few hours when the website just crashed. Yeah. And it, and it was very annoying. Like I ended up buying a ticket to a local, a more local theater chain than AMC. I'm sure I think it is a chain of, of some sense, at least in multiple cities, but I bought that ticket and then when the AMCs came back online, I was able to get a ticket to my preferred screen at my preferred theater. And so I canceled that ticket. But you know what? If I wasn't able to get the exact screen that I want to would have wanted, I would have been okay forking up that $20 for a movie that's 11 years in the making. And it wouldn't have bothered me that much, especially since I, I do see so many movies at such a relatively reduced price for the number of movies that I'm seeing. Uh, it, it wouldn't have bothered me to, to throw that to, to throw that cash, especially from a, from a business perspective as well, because ultimately you have to vote with your money. And Scott, you know... Sometimes it makes sense to vote with your money. Sometimes it doesn't. In this case, it, it wouldn't have bothered me if I did. But I was able to switch relatively painlessly because I was monitoring the situation pretty consistently over the hours. <laughs> oh, yes, I know you were. And even though I, I uh, you know, was originally like, whatever, I'll just wait it out. I did find myself sort of circling back to that AMC website throughout the day uh, until, you know, I finally did see like the tweets and stuff saying that the website was finally back up. So before we do talk some trailers, uh, one more bit of superhero movie news, and that is uh, involving the new Suicide Squad movie. Uh, as we reported, Idris Elba was going to replace uh, Will Smith as Deadshot, but now the news has come out that Idris Elba is actually going to be playing a different role in the movie. Yeah, I think this is this is probably a, a good bit of pivot from from Warner Brothers, from James Gunn, whoever made this decision. So rather than Idris Elba replacing Will Smith, uh, will Smith will still not be returning for the new Suicide Squad movie. They'll just be retiring that character and Idris Elba will play a new character. And I think that's a, probably a good look. It's, you know, no matter who you are, it's pretty insulting to have an actor replace you. Uh, you know, even if it was, con- whether it was contract negotiations or whatever it was, I, I get that out of kind of respect for Will Smith and, and the fact that he brought this character to life in a way that I thought was actually pretty good. Like I didn't have a problem with Will Smith in, in Suicide Squad. I had plenty of other problems with the movie. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I think that this is this is a classy look from Warner Brothers and, and DC here. And just because Idris Elba is playing some, you know, yet to be announced character rather than Deadshot, that doesn't make me less excited for Idris Elba being the headlining role in this movie. If Margot, depending on if Margot Robbie returns or not, of course. But, you know, regardless, you know, if Margot Robbie returns, the two of them will be leading this. If she doesn't, it'll probably just be Idris Elba at the helm. And, and uh, just be, no matter what character he's playing, it's the fact that Idris Elba is in the movie, not because he's playing Deadshot. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think just any sort of positive step for Suicide Squad at this point. Uh, you know, they, they should take any any sort of positive step that they can at this point. Uh, and, you know, like you said, just having Idris Elba in the movie at all, I think, is such a positive step. And, you know, I can't imagine this movie being as bad as the last one, but, you know. Well, especially not with James Gunn. I mean, right. Uh, yeah, you, you would think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, steps in the right direction. 
Yeah, okay. So, Scott, let's talk some trailers now. Uh, we had two big ones, also in the superhero movie world, you know, Avengers Endgame released. I mean, I guess it's probably not fair to say that it was a trailer. It was sort of a one-minute teaser along with, you know, the, the tickets going on sale with AMC. Uh, you know, what, what did you think about the one minute of new footage that we got here? Scott, I loved it. I, you know, there's so much to, to love. I think that it, it, in terms of hi- it builds hype, it, it, it does it. Some people complain that that this trailer showed too much. Uh, and, and for those of you who want to avoid this, boys, I'd recommend just, you know, fast forward a couple minutes here in the runtime and, and get to the next trailer we're going to talk about. But to me, I think that the it's not a surprise to me that, you know, you have the original Avengers, the original trio of Iron Man, Cap and Thor, you know, confronting Thanos and what this trailer makes it appear to be the climactic battle of the movie. I don't think that's a spoiler. Like, I don't think anyone would be surprised yeah. by that. And if you, and if you thought, call it a spoiler, like, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but like, you're not, you're not surprised by the fact that that's, that's what's going to happen in the movie. I, I would, you know, I think the real question is whether that is the climactic moment of the movie or what we see in this movie, because it's a three hour runtime. We've talked about this so many times. There's got to be so much to the story to span three hours. Scott, I mean, that is a long, long runtime. I mean, the last time some movie did this in terms of a climactic final, I think the last time we saw this was probably Lord of the Rings return of the King. And yeah. And so that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a long time in the past now, but that movie was climactic and it had so many different uh, tendrils of the plot, right? You had so many different things you were following and, and you had, you know, a battle that led up to another battle that led up to this final climactic battle. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see if this is the climactic thing. Is this where we're going to be two hours and 45 minutes into the movie or are we going to be at this pot, like say, you know, eighty to ninety minutes into the movie, and then we have the whole second, you know, second half of the movie to really get into what's really going to be happening in Endgame and what's really going to be making the difference? And you know what? I'm I'm kind of inclined to believe it's going to be the latter. I, I kind of am. I, I don't think that a final fight with Thanos is how this entire first, you know, era of the MCU is going to wrap up. I think it's going to be something else. I just I'm not quite sure yet what it's going to be. Uh, but we'll see. But we'll see. And and I think that in terms of new footage. What this trailer really did for me, if we move away from the quabbles that I had with some of the people's complaints about the trailer, and what these in-game trailers have been missing that I thought Infinity War did so well was these like really haunting Thanos voiceovers. And we see it return in this trailer, uh-huh. and I absolutely loved it. The you know the line was, "You couldn't live with your failure. Where did that bring you back to me?" And I just thought that was amazing. I lost my mind. I rewatched it like five <laughs> times. It was so good. Yeah, you know, this is a really solid, uh, you know, new minute. I think it is interesting to see that Marvel, I guess, has gone a little bit away from their original guarantee that they were not going to show any footage beyond the first 20 minutes. But I think I think you're right that it really the principle behind why they were doing that has not been sabotaged by anything that they've done. I think, you know, nothing really has been revealed significantly in this footage that you know, even the most sensitive people about spoilers, I think, are not going to get up in arms about what, uh, you know, has been revealed in these trailers. Uh, and, you know, if you somehow do, like, you probably shouldn't have even been watching the trailers in the first place. Yeah, I think that that's probably the right answer, right? And I also, like, before we do move on, I think that one theory that I've heard about, to, you know, your, to your point about not showing film in the, or like film in the, or I should say shots in the movie that are past the first 15 minutes. I, I don't know if I made this joke on air or off air with you before, but the joke is that, all these scenes that they're showing that seem like they're outside the first 15 minutes are all just scenes they've cut from the oh, actual yeah. movie. So you won't actually see the scenes in the movie, which would just be kind of the biggest it's the troll Snyder cut. But there, 
It's the Snyder Cut. Yeah, exactly. But it would be really, it, it wouldn't surprise me, honestly. Uh, there's actually been, I don't want to take credit for this thought, but there's been like a lot of conversation on movie talk, on Collider's movie talk recently, especially with Perry about how, whether or not it's a good thing if trailers mislead you into thinking uh, with like scenes that have been cut from the movie or, or what the movie's going to be about. Because I think there's a strong feeling that these trailers for the things that feel like they're not the first 15 minutes of the movie might, might be a big kind of false flag misleading, you know, what the movie's going to be about. And I think that kind of setting that scene to my point earlier, setting that scene up where you have, you know, Iron Man cap and Thor confronting Thanos as this climactic scene, right? I think that's a false flag. Not that it won't happen in the film, but that that's like the linchpin of the film. I just don't think that's going to be the case. You know, whether or not that does that scene does happen at the end of the movie, it might still be happening if you have like a split timeline sort of, and, and you know, flashing back and forth to other areas, right? Like it still could be at the end of the film, but it won't be, you know, the be all and the end all. Like to me, that scene's not a, like knowing that Cap, Thor, and Iron Man are confronting Thanos is not a spoiler. A spoiler would be knowing like who else was still alive at the time they confront them, like where the other, everyone else is, going on like we know that confrontation is going to happen it's like what all else is going on in the movie is is the real spoiler yeah yeah and i think there's definitely you know going to be some something more emotional some sort of way to tie tie up this whole uh, era of marvel films than you know simply a final fight to your point so I, I i don't think that that is the very end of the movie at all yeah and if it is, I'll complain about it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, oh yes, uh, we know that you will. Final item, Scott. This was really the trailer that everyone was talking about the this week, and that is uh, the first trailer for the, the new Joker movie directed by Todd Phillips, starring Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. Scott, all of the reactions that I was seeing through this were positive. Um, was yours positive as well? Yeah, my reaction was definitely positive, probably not as positive as some of the reactions that I saw on, on film Twitter. But I'm still I'm here for it. It's super interesting. I think some people were saying like, oh, this is the kind of this is the kind of DC movie that I want. I don't really understand what they're saying there. Like, if anything, th- this t- the tone of this movie leans back towards Batman versus Superman. Yes, the kind of the theme of the movie is going to be more around this kind of character portrayal and the uh, sorry this this kind of character study and the idea of you know dealing with mental health, maybe some element of dealing with family or or dealing with you know relationships, etc. So I think that in that sense, it's it's the kind of movie that I think will lend itself to being good. It it gave you the the tone of the movie, right? It gave you the the yeah. essence of the movie, and ultimately, that's what a trailer should do. It shouldn't be spoiling what's going to happen in the movie. Yeah, I think for me, the thing that I was most skeptical about with this movie was not that it was DC, not that it was another Joker movie, but that it was Todd Phillips directing, right? A guy who is primarily known for you know, his bro comedies, um, stuff like old school and the hangover, I believe he also directed. Um, and so, you know, him taking on this project had me a little bit nervous. Uh, but I think, you know, at least from, from what little you can tell from the first trailer, he seems to have captured, uh, the right tone. He seems to at least act like he, he knows what he's doing, um, with this character, uh, and I think that, you know, I liked the darkness that I saw in the trailer. And I like that, you know, it seems that we're going to be getting more of an origin story for the Joker, because as good as as Heath Ledger's Joker was, you don't have a lot of origin story behind, you know, why he became the Joker, who he was before he was the Joker. Uh, so I think, you know, we can complain about getting another Joker, but I think this movie seems like it's going to add something that we haven't seen uh, to the Joker lore uh, yet. And, and that, uh, you know, is something I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And I agree with that. I think that Todd Phillips 
directing is is definitely interesting, especially given sort of makeup of, of directing and writing history. And the fact that he is directing and writing this movie is a different take. But, you know, we've seen some of the, the best dramatic performances from comedians and and to have a comedian, so to speak, you know, penning the script and behind the camera doing the directing it could be really good. I'm not going to say it's a guarantee. It's definitely an interesting pivot for his movie chops, but I'm not down on it just because of his, of his movie background. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, and Scott, with that, I think that uh, should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you have uh, and you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, a lot of great tiers. Uh, over there if you uh, choose to contribute. If you choose not to contribute, however, that's fine. Uh, We would still appreciate it if you like, uh, rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, And we hope that you'll join us for our next episode on which we will be reviewing the new Stephen King adaptation, Pet Cemetery. Uh, But for now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. (laughs) 